Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Women on the Fringe at the Center of the Gospel. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 19th, 2017, the third Sunday in Lent. This past January, I read a book with the title, Lethal Decisions, The Unnecessary Deaths of Women and Children from HIV-AIDS, newly published in 2017 by Arthur Amon. In fact, Art is a friend of mine and a friend to Journey with Jesus. Every year since 2008, he's written an essay for us for World AIDS Day. When I finished the book, it occurred to me that Art's life and work the last 50 years has been an extended incarnation of the gospel for this week about the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, the longest discourse in all the gospels. Early back in 1982, as the director of the Pediatric Immunology and Clinical Research Center at the University of California Medical Center in San Francisco, Art treated a woman who was a prostitute and intravenous drug user in three of her children. All four presented with unusual deficiencies in their immune systems that were aggravated by opportunistic infections that did not fit normal medical models of disease. They were the same patterns that Art had been studying in gay men after Michael Gottlieb of UCLA identified AIDS as a new disease in a June 1981 publication. In fact, Art had determined that the mother and all three children had contracted AIDS. This was a tragic diagnosis because the disease was at that time fatal. Equally devastating was a terrifying conclusion, hotly contested and very controversial at the time, that HIV-AIDS was not limited to adults. He had determined that the disease had passed from the mother to her children as an acquired and not an inherited disease. And thus, Art documented the first cases of AIDS transmission <coughs> from mother to infant. Not long after, on December 10th, 1982, in a separate case of an infant who had received more than 20 blood transfusions from 19 different donors, Art identified the first case of AIDS transmission by blood transfusion. This too was a tragic and controversial discovery that many people denied. The New England Journal of Medicine, for example, refused to publish his results, as did the British journal Lancet, until it in fact relented and did publish the article on April 30, 1983. And not until 1985 was there a test approved for HIV for use in blood banks. So for the last 50 years, Art has been not just a leading expert at the center of the AIDS crisis, but also a tireless and vocal activist, especially for the women and children who have been impacted by HIV AIDS and yet ignored, and especially women and children 
in the poorest parts of the poorest countries of the world. His friend and colleague Gottlieb has called art the conscience of the pediatric HIV epidemic. His book that I read in January is a highly personal, deeply passionate, and even polemical history of the defining public health crisis of our generation. The HIV epidemic resulted in some remarkable achievements by dedicated and brilliant scientists. Indeed, all the scientific advances, tools, knowledge, and knowledge necessary to begin the process of eradicating HIV in infants and children were in place in 1996. ZDV, to take just one important example, was the first antiretroviral drug approved by the FDA in record time in 1987. But then art considers a stark contrast and reminder. Today, an estimated 21 million people, 59% of HIV-infected individuals, are still not on any treatment. If you are lucky enough to live in a wealthy country, you have access to state-of-the-art drugs that now control HIV. Magic Johnson, for example, publicly announced that he had HIV way back in 1991. But in parts of Africa today, HIV is still what Art calls a quote-unquote hyper-epidemic. And treating children with the highly effective ZDV has been mired in needless controversy for years. Art explains how this radical disparity came to pass. Looking back, he now sees how difficult it can be, in spite of scientific evidence and personal tragedy, to move large and cumbersome institutions and the individuals working within them into action to protect the public from dangers. I was most surprised to read Art's two separate chapters on denialism within the medical scientific community. The many manifestations of bureaucratism loom large. Turf wars, research funding, government gridlock, drug development, issues of confidentiality and liability, gender-based violence, self-interest, conflicts of interest, and counterproductive treatment guidelines by organizations like the World Health Organization, all these combine to create a perfect storm of a catastrophic epidemic. For Art, the story of his book is one of hope and caution. There have been both extraordinary advances but tragic consequences since 1981. For a long time now, we have had the means to identify and treat every individual who is infected with HIV. And art reminds us that there's no excuse not to do exactly that. Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well reminds us that the community he inaugurated calls for a people of inclusion, not exclusion. Dignity, not denigration. Empowerment, rather than exploitation. And affirmation, rather than marginalization. 
His simple request for a drink of water provoked a dialogue with a marginalized woman that teaches us that God does not desire any human being to shrivel and die from a broken body or a parched soul. Rather, he longs to quench our deepest needs and desires with the living water of his spirit. As Jesus traveled from Judea to Galilee, he stopped in the sound of Sychar around noontime, tired and thirsty from the journey. He sat down by a well and asked a Samaritan woman for a drink of water. That Jesus, a Jew, would talk to a Samaritan shocked the woman. That he would talk to a woman surprised his own disciples. In fact, through death or divorce, this woman had burned through five marriages and was then living with a man who was not her husband. When you connect the dots of her story, you realize that this woman epitomized the many ways that society marginalizes people. Jesus shattered the taboos that held sway then and now. Gen gender discrimination, ritual purity, socioeconomic poverty, religious hostility, and the moral stigma of serial marriages. The Samaritan woman displayed spiritual thirst, candor about her many problems, and genuine insight about her real needs. She longed not only for literal water, but for the living water that Jesus offered her, so much so that in her excitement she forgot her water jar when she returned to town. Spiritual nourishment suddenly became more important than material sustenance. This marginalized woman made such a powerful impression upon Jesus and her own neighbors that John included an interesting eyewitness detail about Jesus's itinerary. Upon the neighbor's request, we read in John 4.40 that he stayed two days in the town. The woman embraced Jesus as the Messiah. Her witness converted many other fellow Samaritans in town, and she became the cause of the story's punchline in 4 verse 42. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we really know that this man is the savior of the world. As in so many gospel stories about God's alternative community, John 4 subverts and reverses conventional human wisdom and power relations. Jesus not only engaged in a disreputable, ostracized foreign woman, he cast her as the hero of the story, a symbol of life in his kingdom and as an ardent witness to his universal lordship. The woman at the well warns us of religiosity that turns a deaf ear to the disenfranchised. For books this week, I review a book of poetry. The editor is Helen Wilcox. The title of the book George Herbert, 100 Poems, 
Cambridge, Cambridge University Press, 2016. This book is 174 pages. <clears throat> George Herbert, 1593 to 1633, died at the age of 40, almost 400 years ago. As the public orator at Cambridge University, he was, as editor Helen Wilcox notes, one of the most accomplished rhetoricians of his generation. He hailed from an aristocratic family. And yet, even today, there's a broad consensus among scholars and non-experts alike that he's one of the greatest devotional poets <coughs> of the English language. Born to privilege, Herbert experienced his own brokenness, and as a result, he demonstrated unusual compassion for the human condition. He was only three when his father died. Elected to Parliament, he anticipated a distinguished career in politics and public service. At the age of 36, though, he shocked his friends when he became the rector at Bemerton, a small village near Salisbury, where he spent the rest of his short life before dying of tuberculosis. In Bemerton, he preached, wrote poetry, served the pastoral needs of his people with loving distinction, cared for the poor, and even helped to rebuild the church using his own resources. Remarkably, none of Herbert's poems had been published when he died. But upon his deathbed, he gave them to his friend, Nicholas Ferrer, asking them to be published only if they might help, quote, any dejected poor soul, end quote. His little book, as he called it, contained, quote, a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul, before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus, my master, in whose service I have found perfect freedom, end quote. According to the editor Wilcox, the key to understanding Herbert's poetry is an appreciation for its remarkable balance of rhetorical skill and complexity, on the one hand, and a simplicity and directness of style, on the other. To take one, just one example, consider the last line of his poem, Love Three. It contains just six monosyllables. So I did sit and eat. After a short introduction by Wilcox, the 100 poems are laid out with a befitting simplicity. There are two alphabetical indexes at the end of the book, one for the titles of the poems and another of first lines. This book begs to be read and savored, perhaps on a poem a day basis. And just a final footnote, for a sampler of George Herbert's poetry, we have posted 18 of his poems at Journey with Jesus. Just go to our poetry index and look for George Herbert. Once again, the title of the book, George Herbert, 100 Poems. The editor, 
Helen Wilcox, Cambridge University Press. For movies this week, we go to the country of Kazakhstan. The title of the film, The Eagle Huntress, 2016. This 90-minute documentary premiered at the 2016 Sundance Film Festival. It tells the story of a rosy-cheeked 13-year-old Kazakh girl named Aishalpan Nergayev, who trained to become the first female falconer in 12 generations of her family history. In the first part of the film, she captures and then trains an eaglet, and then enters the annual Golden Eagle Festival as the youngest participant and first-ever female handler among 70 competitors. Then, with her father, she braves the frigid Altai Mountain winter to take her eagle fox hunting. This film works well at several levels. In featuring the nomadic family life of Kazakh herders in western Mongolia, it's an ethnographic delight. It's also a science and nature story. It's just remarkable to see how the eagles are trained what they can do, and the bond with their handlers. Drone cameras capture the spectacular scenery of the Mongolian steppe, which is worth watching for its own sake. And finally, the movie is also a tender father-daughter story. Most of all, as many commentators have noticed, this is a coming-of-age story that's brimming with female empowerment, despite the grumbling of the culturally conservative men. The film is in Kazakh with English subtitles. Once again, the title of the film, The Eagle Huntress, a fantastic film. And finally, in keeping with our essay this week, we've posted a poem by the Jesuit priest and poet Daniel Berrigan. Title, somewhat sarcastic, it's called Suburban Prayer. Grant us for grace oppositions, stymiings, sand in our pet gears, a bubble in the cozy blood. Crowd our real estate with the ragtag real, the world. Marry us off, lonely girls to Harlem in Asia. This Lent celebrate in the haunted house, the world. Suburban Prayer by the Jesuit Daniel Berrigan. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, March the 19th, 2017, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.